0: hello hello welcome back to the black on black education podcast i hope everybody had a great holiday and today we're going to get back to our regularly scheduled program with mr tim m west we had a fantastic conversation with this multifaceted scholar and advocate for educational equity and education reform i hope that you guys enjoy the conversation and let us know on social media what you think welcome to the black on black education podcast we are so happy to have you And so, I want you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Tell the people who you are, who you work for, and what brought you to this work.
1: Sure, my name is uh, Tim M. West. Um, Let's see, who am I? (laughs) Um, Goodness, I'm a black, queer, scholar, poet, activist, MC, um, community mobilizer, um, born in Cincinnati, raised in Arkansas. I moved back home to Cincinnati two years ago. Love it here. Uh, doing a lot of work in community. Uh, I work for Teach For America. I've been with them for a little more than five years. Um, leading their LGBTQ plus community initiative, which uh, is pretty. I'm the inaugural director of that. So it's relatively new work in the scope of the organization's um, history. Mm-hmm. And then what, what brought me to the work is that, you know, this is work I would would be doing and have done anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's kind of one of those moments where you see a job description and you're like, oh, like I can get paid to do what I like to do anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and actually, it's interesting because I think when they announced that they were creating this initiative, I had three different friends of mine who were not connected, didn't even know each other, that sent me the job description all mm-hmm. on the same day. And I think that was sort of a, a testament that their and, and and their belief that I was the person for the position. And you know, that was in April of 2014, and July 9th I, I started.
2: Awesome,
0: awesome. And it's always nice to uh, be doing work that, like, if 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 money wasn't necessary, I'd be doing it for free. That's kind of like the goal of whatever I want to do with my career. I want to do something that if money, if I didn't need money, that I would still do it for free. Um, And so you pretty much answered the second question, but could you just tell you, you gave us some of your identifiers and some Mm -hmm. of the the key pieces of your identity. Can you just explain to people what that means to you and why for you leading with your identity um, matters?
1: It's interesting. I think in, in the, in the world in which we live, um, you know, Especially with regards to uh, the value of intersectionality. I've, I've grown up in a world where uh, two and probably more aspects of my identity, you know, have not been validated and affirmed. Mm-hmm. Uh, not as a black person, a black man, um, and certainly not as an LGBTQ person. Mm-hmm. I think what complicates that is, is is um the the rather insidious and egregious (laughs) homophobia that I sometimes experience in black spaces Mm. uh, and the equally uh, egregious uh, racism I experience in gay spaces. So I think people at the intersection of blackness and queerness have a particular sort of cross to bear in the the sense of sometimes not feeling safe in the communities we are told we should feel safe in, right? Um, So going to queer spaces and, and, and not seeing people that reflect my racial identity, mm. uh, going to black space and not hearing anyone talk about uh, LGBTQ inclusion as if we don't exist or mm. uh, haven't always existed, right? So I think you know, it's been important to me to bear in particular those two identities very proudly and also create spaces where you know, black, queer, and trans folk don't have to choose, right? Like, you don't know, you can be your full self here. I, I am optimistic, uh, at least in black spaces, perhaps more so than, than queer spaces. Uh, I, I've seen more black spaces really lean into inclusion, inclusion uh, in a way that I hadn't experienced in previous times. I know here in Cincinnati, there are multiple spaces where I can go bring my full self. And these are black spaces. and it, you know, and I'm welcome as who I am. And I think that's that to me is promising. I want black people to get inclusion right in a way that white people haven't gotten inclusion, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, that that's kind of a selfish desire that that we get it right in a way that other people haven't, that we're mm-hmm. leaders in inclusion work and not followers,
0: absolutely. That's huge. And I think for people who are hearing this conversation, I am someone who like coming to the summit and meeting you and, and being in a space where I was learning about issues that I didn't, that, that I didn't really, I didn't know about. And it was great for me to be in a space and which is why I wanted to go to the LGBTQ summit because I wanted to know that best practices on how to deal with these issues within the space of, of education and how education is so necessary in understanding that these people and their identities, um, the same way that you want your racial identity to be seen, uh, people want their their, their, um, their gender, gender identities to be seen and they want their, um, their sexuality identities to be seen. And so I think that that's super important. And in talking about that, if you could just explain to people who don't understand the, the, the uh, recent use of queer, if you could
1: just- um, got it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I kind of knew that's where you were going because I actually haven't always identified as queer when I first mm-hmm. came out in the um, and even the term come out. When I, that's something I've sort of shifted around to, which mm-hmm. at some point later. But um, you know, I, I had a very early sense of uh, who I was. You know, I think people often say kids can not know who they are at X Y or Z age. But we, we have no problem talking about the crush that Cindy has on Marcus, or, you know, but like we, we like it blows our mind that uh, like like a little boy might know that he has an attraction. I, I tend to like the term affectional orientation because I think it gets us away from the uh, the way that when people talk about sexual minorities that they over and hyper sexualize us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember when I even, when I did first come out and people were like, well, how do you know? Like, have you, you know, have you been with a guy? And I was like, actually, I haven't. Right. And I hadn't. Um, and I remember that burden of proof, like, oh, well, maybe you're just confused or like, maybe you just, you know, whatever, X, Y, Z. And I was like, no, I, I know because it's it's like a heart thing, right? Like attraction to me is, is a, as much a heart thing as anything else. And um, and so. Part of the reason why I use queer is because terms like homosexual, you know, uh, are bisexual or pansexual, which I'm if I were to describe myself from a sexual perspective, I'm probably pansexual. But I, I really I really have an aversion to defining myself in terms of sex. And it's not to be sex phobic. It's just to say that like I don't want that to be the first thought in someone's mind when they describe me. Uh, w- when I hear the word heterosexual, I don't think about two people having sex, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> but right. quite often, when, when people hear homosexual or whatever, uh, the the term gay, which I identified with as a for a long time, and I don't, I mean, I'm not opposed to people saying that I'm gay. It's like I think that's I'm not toxic in that way. If you if you say I'm gay, I'm fine with it. But I think there is the acknowledgement that um, that the term gay has been wielded and, and, and sort of commodified by a lot of like white privilege, mm. and gay white privilege. Um, and so identifying as gay to me, it conjures images uh, in people's heads of like, gay white men,
2: yeah.
1: gay movement. And I think queer, because it is a, it is a term that has been sort of reclaimed.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, it is a term that I think is a lot more politicized um there are other friends I have that will use uh the term same gender loving or both gender loving. Uh Cleo Monago is credited with creating those terms that kind of speak to uh you know who we are as black people. Uh but personally I just I like the term queer. I like that if people feel uncomfortable with it, I like to, oh like why did he just say he was queer? um <laughs> uh, and i love that especially like my, my millennials my black millennials and and, and under and younger are have really claimed that term i, I have a t-shirt that i uh, branded that uses a term that i came up with probably 15 years ago on more, uh, which is b-l-a-q-u-e-e-r mm-hmm. and i pronounce it blacker and uh and my my sense around that is that uh you know the margins have always historically held the center together and black queer people have always been pushed to the margins of blackness but if you look at the black arts movement or civil rights history or all these different points in our uh, the Harlem renaissance right like black queer folk have always played a major role uh, in any of those movements you talk about the black church as controversial as that may seem to some like we all up in there right so <laughs> So I think Blacker or Black queer or whatever is an acknowledgement that, you know, we have always been a part of the Black community. We've always been here. And, that, and in terms of education, what that means, especially in our low-income schools, in our under-resourced schools, it's important for kids to see. Like, if I had known that James Baldwin was a gay man,
2: mm-hmm.
1: like, the, the, the singular difference that just that fact would have made and me being like, oh, there's somebody great that's like uh, Arthur that we're reading that's actually yay, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, I was a teen and I think I come to this work which is an important part of my identity because I was a teen that had a suicide attempt. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a 16 year old black kid in Southwest Arkansas who uh, identified and was seen by most of the world as a very masculine guy, played sports, and did the hip hop stuff. And so I thought I was a bit of a unicorn because I, I when I did see representations of, of gay men, uh, they were always being made fun of. They were, you know, it was usually like straight comedians, you know, the Blaine and Antoine, you know, the Eddie Murphy things and just like people just making fun of. And and, and, and that's not a because I love my my femme brothers and, you know, everybody. But I think when you are growing up in a world where you, you don't have any identifiers of like, oh, I can be comfortable in my masculine presentation and not be toxic uh, and still like guys, <laughs> you know? So that was important for me. And when I got to college, uh, it was actually through black feminism that I actually found a space to affirm myself. And so it was reading Audre Lorde. Uh, it was, there's an anthology, if you have not read it, it's classic, it's called the Home Girls Anthology. Uh, and that, that was like my Bible, Um, and so, uh, you know, I really credit black feminism and black women with creating spaces for black men to really interrogate who we are, uh, and to really present different ways of living and being in the world.
0: Yes. Um, I think it just comes back to that, like cliche term that people use all the time saying that like, it's very difficult to be what you can't see.
2: Mm -hmm. Yep.
0: So just changing Mm -hmm. that, like you saying that thing about James Baldwin, like, that is so key to this, this conversation because we oftentimes will talk about our black men not like there's nothing wrong with black men wanting to be rappers and wanting to be basketball mm-hmm. players, but understanding that that's not all that you can be and right. so this incredible civil rights activist, this writer, essayist, playwright, novelist who does writes incredibly and makes and invokes emotion, just knowing that he is he identifies the same way that you do gives you a, a, a door open into hey, I can be like this person because there's someone who has done it. It is a very scary thing, no matter what you identify as, as mm-hmm. feeling like you have to be a groundbreaker in something.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like that. And I also think there's a, there's a real tie-in with gender here, right? Like mm-hmm. when you think of James Baldwin, when you think of like, we, we don't often exalt our brothers in the world who don't present in these very sort of traditionally domineering sort of hyper-masculine kind of ways. And I think that's part of it, right? Like, you know, uh, I think now we're starting to see more of that. We're starting to see straight men really challenge gender norms and identities by showing up in the world different than we've mm-hmm. often seen them, right? And I think that's, to me, I look at, you know, for me, owning who I am as a as a as a black queer man is about liberation. It's about freedom, right? And sort of doing this work to um, to have teachers and classrooms and educators. And it's not about, you know, people say pushing some agenda. It's not that. It's, it's like literally just showing our kids the world the way it is. Right? I think it's it's almost like irresponsible not to. like Like, actually, when you're not doing that, you're actually pushing a lie. Um, And the fact is, you know, some of our some of our kids in our schools have two moms or two dads or one mom or they stay with their grandma. And I I feel like that's the beautifully dynamic thing about black family and black people is that we we have traditionally just always taken care of each other in whatever way that needs to show up. Um, And I think sometimes, you know, get caught up in the whole respectability politics of nuclear families. I'm like, that's that's not that's not. Traditional for us, mm-hmm. quite honestly, and, and I'm okay with that. Um, and, and yet, we allow some people to vilify, you know, that idea of you know single parents or single moms or whatever. And so you know, a single mom did not prevent an uncle or a, a, a godfather or someone in the family from stepping in and providing kids with a positive male role model. It doesn't have to be in the traditional way that we imagine it. Mm-hmm. And I think if we can be more inventive about that, I actually claim that as a strength of ours, like like we can figure this out in, in a variety of different ways. I think that that flexibility, that ingenuity, that innovation of how we make family is one of the most beautiful things about, about us as a people.
0: Absolutely. And I think like a lot of what we just touched on, kind of we keep, the conversation is going in a way that's just like easily going through these questions. But um we just spoke so much about intersectionality and we spoke mm-hmm. so much about like the intersections of people's identity. And I was speaking to someone the other day, just about the idea that um, finding spaces where you identify and you feel comfortable and where you build yourself up is not, it, we, they were talking about the difference between segregation and affinity. And, and that the, that, that some people have this idea, if I'm, if black on black education is only talking about education for black folks, then you're leaving out Latinx folks and you're leaving out, um, white people and you're leaving out all these, these changes that needs to be made in education for them. And it's not to say that I'm leaving them out. It's to say that I'm 100% for allying with you. But the specific mission of what we're trying to do is focus on. build an affinity around this group so they can build themselves up to come to come into diverse spaces and feel like they're on equal footing with everybody else and so
1: and the reality is we have tons of spaces that are like predominantly are all white education spaces and it's not being called white it's being called education
2: yep we know
1: it's not done so with an intention and a mindset of like being inclusive and so yeah, I agree with you. It's a both-and thing. Like, I'm not going to be apologetic about having space where we can get together and talk about issues that are unique to us, because I feel like that's a different conversation. Mm-hmm. I feel like the conversation shifts when you have a different presence in the room. And I think Latinx people need their own spaces, right? That I don't need to be floating up in, right? And our Native people need their spaces that, like, you know, and we need our spaces where we're coming together and talking in exactly. coalition.
0: Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so I think that just like bringing intersectionality as a, as a term into the conversation, it's that idea that like we're taking our identity. So your identity as a black queer man and saying that I'm not just queer, I'm not just black. I have to be both and bringing those things together and teaching that and understanding that. And it comes up so clearly when you talked about um, when you talked about like the fact that this is reality, it's not like I'm pushing an agenda the reality is that there are people out there who are, are men who like men. And there are people out there who are women who like women. And there are people out there who are just ready and willing to love and be loved by anybody. And that there's nothing wrong with that. And so knowing that there's nothing wrong with that, there shouldn't be anything wrong with exposing children to that so that they understand the world that they're coming into. Um, Yes. And I love it. And so moving into the next question, I just kind of want to touch on what Brave Education is, how you kind of came up with it or who is who are the founders in Brave Education and why it's so important.
1: It's interesting. I I have already, you know, so it's interestingly in terms of like bravery is something that has followed me for quite some time, Um, not necessarily as a brand or anything, but like I was a founder of a collective called Brave Soul Collective, which is a group of HIV positive black men who are artists and another identity I bring to the table. Although not always right up front, but I think it's important that we also like live into the reality of how HIV and AIDS has disproportionately impacted black folk. Uh, and in spaces where I was allowed to be an educator and, and open about my orientation, I also talked honestly with my kids about um, the risk of HIV in our communities and was a, they were able to see somebody that was like they, they admired and looked up to and cared about. And so it created an awareness, I think, for a lot of them about about HIV/AIDS. So that bravery was just something like, and it wasn't something I t- gave myself. It was something people would. It was one of those terms people continually would say, like, "Oh, you're so brave, you're so this that." Mm-hmm. Um, I think brave education is just an acknowledgement of the reality that when you're doing freedom and liberation work in education, that like it's it takes courage, right? Like it's there's a system that's designed not to have our people win. Right. And it, it dates back to the very origins of our nation. Mm-hmm. And so when you really try to shift that paradigm, right, when you really try to uh, I, I the, the, the most proximate uh, sense I have to this is i I brought a home in the community in Cincinnati that is fast gentrifying. Um, but there's a neighborhood school in the in the, the in the community. I think the neighbors probably six, probably like fifty five you know, 40 percent black and then maybe 5 percent, a little bit of everything else. Mm. Um, but the school, the neighborhood school is like 90 percent black. Mm. Um, yeah, like, how does that happen? Right. Well, it's because, you know, like white people that move into the neighborhood don't want to send their kids to the neighborhood school. Uh, And there's a notion or an idea that like a black school can't be like the excellent school or the one that's, you know, so I I was like, okay, let me get involved in this school. Right. I'm, you know, I do education work all over the country. Um, It it gives me a different kind of insight to be able to like, look at the kids walking down a block and in the neighborhood school, a few blocks from me and say like, how can I contribute to making that school the best in the city? And we're doing some amazing work at that school Uh, really challenging these notions that, like, you know, Black can't be excellent. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, like, we can have culturally responsive pedagogy. We can uplift our Black kids. And, like, you know, the white kids that go to that school and the Latinx kids that go to that school can actually get a great education and be affirmed in who they are as well, Mm -hmm. right? It's interesting that when we talk about inclusion, there's there's something that happens, and I'm a philosopher by by training, so I always think of things in, in this way, but, like, we have to be careful that when we talk inclusion that we are not centering whiteness. Mm-hmm. Like, oftentimes, inclusion means like, oh, like, you have this space, presume white, but we don't say it, and it means that we're bringing these other people in.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, so what does it mean if we center inclusion from a Black space? Mm-hmm. Like, what is, what, is that, what does Black inclusion look like, right? What does Latin exclusion look like? What does it mean for a queer space to be inclusive? right and i think uh, there's a way that we we kind of like i don't think it's intentional but i think we we when we talk about a lot of inclusion it it has a the presumption of this kind of signifier of like white dominant straight heterosexual culture and i think you know my thing is like yeah what does it mean if we have you know a, a school that's predominantly black but it is serving all of our students well and giving them a great education and so that's that's the mission that i'm on Mm -hmm. Um, you know, uh, and uh, I think that's, it's just really important to be involved at the local level in education. And when I show up at the school, I show up as who I am, you know, that, you know, uh, I I don't have to declare it or say it. There's this, uh, this push that my brother uh, Karamo Brown, so uh, I think most people know him from uh, Queer Eye, uh, Mm -hmm. but we are friends well before that. (laughs) Uh, And, one time we were talking, he, he he mentioned a term, he doesn't say coming out, and he, he, he used this term letting people in.
2: Mm.
1: Uh, and I I thought about that because he's like, when you come out, like you're kind of making a spectacle of who you are. Like, you, you're like oh, I'm doing, so like, I'm coming out. And I'm like, well, actually, I'm not, I'm just being who I am, really. Uh, I'm, I'm letting you into who I am. <laughs> um, and it's the onus is on you to accept that or to reject it. This idea of letting people in, rather than, like, the spectacle of me, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm going to share with you who I am. And the onus is on you to accept it or reject it. And if you don't, then that, that's that's a you issue. Like I like coming out, I'm not doing anything to anyone, right I'm simply living into my freedom mm. uh and if you if you want to deny the freedom then then you're the person that's the spectacle, not me mm. right and I think it's it's a way of reclaiming and owning uh our agency and in, in terms of how we show up in the world uh you know, black women don't need to explain if they are woman first or black first no like <laughs> you know um. And I think there there's some people, especially at those intersections, that they always have to prove a point. Like prove it. I remember when I was a black student alliance president in undergrad at Duke. Mm. And I had someone ask me, um, was I was I black first or gay first? And I was just like, I was like even a hard president question the process. I was just like, yeah. <laughs> I almost want to say, are you straight first or black first? Like <laughs> like you know, I mean, they're two different identities, but like there's that burden of proof that somehow our allegiance is less to blackness if we own another identity. And it ultimately often benefits like a kind of white, I mean, a kind of, sorry, rather a kind of black patriarchal, you know, uh, if it if it, it matters most, if it matters to straight black men, you know, um, But I, but I'm also happy to see a lot of my straight brothers uh, who have shown up as as uh, co-conspirators and allies alongside their sisters, uh, but we got a long way to go, right? When black trans women are killed, there's very little buzz about it. Uh, when black women are killed, you know, it there's like buzz for two days and then it goes away. There are not like mass marches in the streets. There's just something about like we have to be really, we have to really interrogate this. Response that we have to to the violence and 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 murder of black men that we don't give other people like that's really problematic for me and I don't want our kids growing up in a world where they think oh like because it says something about the value like how do we value black female bodies mm. like how do we ba- value our black trans people how do we uh, value black gay men um, you know that's that there's there's the black gay men who are being you know doped up and, and killed through sexual exploitation. You know, we never talk about that, right? And so there are all these narratives that, you know, if Black Lives Matter, then that means all of them do, right? Absolutely.
0: And, and looking at the intersections between identities allows us to look at why is it that these marches are happening in this space but they're not happening in this one Mm -hmm. and that we're paying attention to these in the news cycles paying attention to these but they're not paying attention to those And, and just to touch a little bit on when you talked about inclusive education um i i think this is some stuff happening in academia around students with special needs and the research that's going on with that and students with autism but they're having a conversation about inclusive education and what that truly means and what we're doing in the classroom to make those those changes so like from the research that i've read it's it's the idea that like we are trying to make the students who are on the margins includable rather than making the classroom experience inclusive for everyone and so i think that touches so much on what you just said because we can't we can't try to again make the students on the margins, the students who aren't doing as well, the students who need special, um, uh, special accommodations and things like that. We don't want to make them includable, make them mold them to be the person that is enough for the classroom and rather make the classroom a place that is a facilitating environment for everyone in there to get their needs met. And I think that you talked about that so beautifully in the way that you talked about inclusive education and what that looks like and how we have to continue to, to push that narrative in that conversation about inclusive education, because again, in New York city, most segregated schools in the United States. And again, like they're like, we'll, we'll, we'll leave a few seats for, for economic, for economically disadvantaged students and students of color we'll leave a few seats in this school for them so that it can be a more diverse space, but it's not truly diverse. If the curriculum doesn't change, if the culture of the school doesn't change, if the conversations happening in the school don't change. And if we're not making it that this benefits, not only the people of color, not only the people coming from economic economically disadvantaged communities, but the people who need to understand that the world that they live in is not, is not always reality for everybody.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And, and so we're just going to shift gears a little bit to talk about a little bit more of, what, of the conversations we were having at the LGBTQ summit to have you explain to people what tender masculinity is and why it's such a great alternative to toxic masculinity.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. I, I just, I think I grew weary of like how often we were hearing the word "fragile" and "toxic masculinity," mm-hmm. and I was like, you know, there's there's a way that you center something and trying to decenter it, right? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like okay, like toxic. That's toxic. That's like, well, why aren't we being so as adamant and as vigilant about defining what is not that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's one thing we can tell our boys what it is to be toxic, but like, we're not defining in a positive fashion, like what it, what it is not to be. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think tender masculinity is, is an effort, you know, it's imperfect. Uh, there's some people that say, oh, like, why do we, you know, why do we need the masculinity part? I'm like, well, you know, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with masculinity. I think it's the associations of masculinity with dominance and with, you know, hegemonic behavior and just like not caring about anybody and being, you know, um, you know, all these sort of negative uh, ideas. And so I think tenderness, uh, the ability to take a term like tender and a term like masculinity, which has these negative connotations in a, in a lot of people's mind and putting them together is about like the invention of uh, not the invention of something new. Cause I think it's always existed. You know, tender masculinity for me is my grandpa who was just, mm-hmm. You know, one of the most kind, gentle, affirming men that I I knew and experienced. He was always gentle with my grandmother. He was gentle with my. You know, I'm, I'm sure they got whoopings, You know, <laughs> you know, my, my, you know, when they acted up, when they was younger, or whatever. But like, he just wasn't. You know, he wasn't this kind of like super hard, hypermasculine, domineering man. Like he he was a, he was a grandpa that told us he loved us all the time. You know, and so. For me, like, like tender masculinity is a way of like claiming a name for something that I've always known, right? And and being proud of that. Like, like there are men in our space and in our communities who who show up in very tender, affirming ways, who don't, who don't show up in these toxic ways. And then how do we relay that? Uh, how do we create a new norm and a new standard for how black boys can show up in the world by by creating a space? for that right that you don't have to say no homo if you think your friend has a nice shirt like i mean just like re- like re- the kind of ridiculousness of toxic masculinity sometimes it's just like really dude really did you just say pause because you told him his jeans were nice
2: like, like yeah
1: that's a lot of energy like you could use that energy to make an a in a class like <laughs> you know? um the way
0: you're, you're comp- the way you're picking apart your sentences, that's what we need to be putting that into your reading comprehension stuff, <laughs> Right. <Are> we- <laughs> but,
1: but the reality is, you know, we've created a space where that is, um, where it's just really difficult, I think, for, and it's, it's, it's really about being accepted. Like, really, toxic masculinity, if you look at the roots of it, is really about, like, I don't want to be picked on. I don't want to be cast out. So actually, it's interesting that there's a, that like toxicity and tenderness are kind of tethered together. Because Mm -hmm. in being toxic, what you want is affirmation. What you want is love. What you want is your boys to give you a pound or dap or like, you know, say something great about you. But it's like, what what if we shifted and just owned it? Like, that's really what we want. We want our brothers to think we're amazing and to hug us and love us and think we're great. So why do we have to go through this middle stage of being toxic to get the things that we want? I mean, and you think about like sports culture or like, even like, you know, like it's interesting that like sports, which is one of the most hyper-masculine spaces that we have, mm-hmm. that there's all this tender tenderness and affection in that space that no one ever questions. <laughs> right. But mm-hmm. as soon as the, as soon as the uniforms come off, you know, you got to, step back in. And I think I think there's also an opportunity for me for for black men to be to to really be pioneers in that space of like, you know, how do we respect and exalt and treat our women? How do we create space for them? How do we offer spaces where they can have voice? And you know, how can men step back and say, like, we're gonna, we're not gonna follow this patriarchal model. It just bothers me when black men talk about how they don't have what the white man like I'm like, is that really what we're trying to go for? <laughs> like, because you realize that's same that same thing is what's got you oppressed as a black person. <laughs> so I don't know that that should be the objective. I mean, and it's it's not anything wrong with people wanting to be empowered to be you know uh, economically you know um, you know uh, economically viable and, and lucrative, but I think you know, we're upholding a standard in our comparison to a standard that I don't know is really the right thing rather than creating our own. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it goes back to what Audre Lorde said about, uh, you know, the master's tools and the master's house, uh, you know, uh, you know, you can't use the master's tools to dismantle the master's house. So like, why are we trying to use these same tools that have oppressed us to be free?
2: You kind of to be oppressed.
1: Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So I think I mean I think it's it's an invitation, it's an opportunity. I think you know I I, I embrace my masculinity. It's so funny. I was I was at I was at a I was at a, um, a queer friendly night at a at a black bar in Cincinnati. Where I was like watching a basketball game, and it was just so interesting, like being this She's kind of raw, 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 like jock dude up in the bar, like you know, and uh, and then saying and saying yes to the transgender girl that walks by. You know, like, and to me, that's like black liberation. That's like, we are all in these spaces together and we just love on each other. You know, I think that's, that to me is, is the, the, the radical act of love. And I think my love for education, when I step up to be brave, it's, it's really about my love for my people Mm. and my community. Like I can, I cannot not be brave because I love my people that much that I need to step into my courage to create. Uh, this thing that happens so I think you know it's like I get upset when people like I get upset about how our schools are failing kids like it's deeply concerning to me um so as a community member I will show up at this school and the kids will be like oh there goes Mr. Tim man. you don't rap for us you know whatever but like it's, it's important that they know like I don't have to. you know I have a full-time job I can do other things but I want to show up and be present because this is urgent for me
2: mm. Yeah,
0: I, I mean, I think it is that important. And when we look at, at when we when we have that conversation, and we look at the importance of love, the importance of embracing each other, the importance of seeing each other, um, that that focus. Changes the way that we look at our schools, the way we have the, the way our the buildings even look, the way they operate. Because again, we are failing students, and we're failing all students. We're not failing mm-hmm. just Black ones. Oh no. yeah,
1: absolutely, absolutely, we're absolutely.
0: All students, and so we need to create these spaces of affinity where we can break down. Well how, well how are we failing this group how are we failing this group how are we failing this group and then be able to come together in a space to say well how do we use love how do we use affection how do we use conversation how do we use um uh, education to bring these spaces together so we stop failing all of these groups
2: absolutely yeah
0: um and so like we're having this conversation two people who kind of understand the issue and who want to f- be a part of fixing the issue um how do educators begin tackling some of these, what some people consider difficult conversations in the classroom, and some of your experiences with how you've been able to do it as an educator?
1: I think there's, um, and this is part of the bravery part, right? I think that we we silo education, like it's like, oh, we have education over here, and then your life is over here, right? I think what we found and what we were talking about even before this, this, this conversation really started was about, like, how you were saying that you've had the most success with students when you've built a relationship with them. Absolutely. Right? It's all relationship building. I think we, 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 we hammer so much about testing and content. Like, you, know, you know why my students did well? Because they loved me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, my students were like, they, were, they did not want to disappoint me. I remember one time I was working at a school in DC and a teacher said, "Uh, why do your students always stop you in the hall and tell you that they didn't do their homework? (laughs) I said, well, you don't find out till you ask for the assignment. Hmm. Uh, She said, I've never thought about that way. I said, you know what? They are, they are concerned about how, about how I'm going to perceive them. You know, um, I don't have to wait to the moment I ask for it. Like they, they, they want me to know because they, they want to do better. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like there's a conscientiousness there about like, Oh, Mr. West, I'm sorry. Like, you know, I didn't do it. Right. And I'm like, okay, we can work on that in class. we are gonna figure out a, figure out a way for you to do that. But I want them to be mindful because I think when you build a relationship and they, and they know that you care, I think, love and that that radical kind of like I love my people Mm -hmm. and I love all my people I love my Latinx kids I love my white kids my Asian kids I I loved all my kids um but I think when when they know that like that is the best motivator for excellence Mm -hmm. and I think that we have been so afraid to talk about love and caring for people it's actually problematically been situated as like um, a bad thing like I've even been in education spaces like oh like you know you know, uh, you can't get too emotionally connected to your kids. What the, what is, what is, huh? Like, really? And then, I, then I'm like, well, that's what's wrong with our education system because people aren't uh, connected. You know, there's, there's something that they do. Uh, a, a lot of people, uh, you know, that are affiliated with TFA uh, will use the term, my kids, right? <laughs> I was talking to this brother in Baltimore who's an educator. He's like, I, I hate when people say that. They're, they're not your kids. Those are your students. Uh, And I was like, I said, okay, so I I get it, right? Because if you don't see them as your kids, then you can have a kind of emotional distance from like how the system is failing them. Yeah. Right? My thing is like the the neighborhood, the the neighborhood school that I'm advocating for and I show up at, you know, if and should I decide to adopt, which is actually something that's on my radar right now, um, even though I have a grown daughter, um, I, want, I want to feel like my kids can go to that school and get as good an education as anywhere else, That's right? Awesome. And so, like, I am like I think we have to ask ourselves, like, are, are those of us who are educators and doing this work, would we place our own children, would we place our nieces and nephews in the schools where we teach? Wow. And when you think of it that way, right, like, what needs to happen for that school to be good enough that you can go to your school, drop your kid off, they go down the hall to Miss So-and-so or Mr. So-and-so, and you can feel like, you know what? I know they're going to be affirmed. I know they're going to see themselves reflected in the materials. Mm. I, I know they're going to be pushed to be rigorous and excellent. You know, and, and that's that's what I want. I think this distance of, oh, those are my students, or like those are somebody else's kids, you know, it creates a, a, a distance that I think in particular black and brown communities can't afford. We can't afford not to see all these kids as our kids. And, and it really goes against the way that we, have historically operated as a community. I think we've really gotten away from that. Like you know, when I was growing up in in Arkansas, and you know, uh, Miss So and So down the road saw me do something that wasn't whatever. Like she's getting on the phone and call my mom. Right there was an entire community investment in making sure everybody was like you know in check. Yeah. Um, and I, I would love to get back to that sense of like you know radical communal, like you know unapologetic you know, love for our communities and our people.
0: Mm. I feel like that just answered every other question, honestly. Like, like, like seriously, like the mm-hmm. idea that we are looking at our kids and looking at these students as ours. And I talk about this so often as I went to a predominantly white high school, a space where I did not feel um, like I was a part of that community. I didn't feel loved in that way. Now I had teachers who were incredible and I had people who invested time and energy into me because... I came to school and I showed up. Um, I was the captain of the track team and I was the fast girl. And I was, and so I, I had those moments where I felt included, but it wasn't a space where I felt like people are trying to foster me as a person. You're either trying to foster me as a student, you're trying to foster me as, a, as an athlete, you're trying to foster me as the student body president, but not me as a human, build me mm, up.
2: Mm-hmm. And so
0: that idea of... Like, let's look, let's take a step back and look at this as how do I make the kids at Bahala feel like, and the parents and the students at Bahala or the students at whatever other school is around, how do I make them feel also responsible for, for, for how I felt in that building? How do I make the other students be like, oh, but when we're only, when we only talk about Kwanzaa and then we're like, we're inclusive, I don't celebrate Kwanzaa. That's one. To right. that, you know, that idea where like when they talk about Rosa Parks everybody's like oh yeah you know her right like those two those two or three times a year when 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 a when a powerful black person is brought up in conversation that like how do you make it so that everybody else in that building is like hey I don't think that Eva feels like this is her home like this is her family here Because we don't ever talk about people who look like her or who might have experiences similar to hers, and that people who weren't born sixty and seventy and eighty years ago, people that that are doing incredible work now, and that yeah that that I've got I have feelings about that because that's so important and Mm -hmm. and it's so sad how many kids in the in the in this country in this world who don't feel loved who go to school not feeling loved and and not feeling like what they have as a human is is bringing value to, to that building. Um, and so with that, I just wanna ask you, what has been one of the most transformative experiences that you've had with students and the knowledge that you've been able to get from them, but also that you've been able to give to them um, that you want administration and policymakers and Betsy DeVos um, and these people who are (laughs) hung up in the way that education operates in our country currently that you want them to know and experience that you want them to know and understand and that should be scaled to to every public school in this country
1: yeah I mean I think it would go back to my my message earlier it's like you know you you cannot liberate you cannot uh, uplift you cannot um support people that you don't that you don't love fundamentally so like it's interesting that we have what i think was really interesting about like education when when schools are segregated right Mm -hmm. Uh, and teachers lived in black community with students right and even um our our law enforcement in many cases lived in communities with people and then we've kind of gotten this distancing where you have like Suburban teachers coming into urban districts to kind of teach and then leave and go back right so there's a there's a distancing and I think that distancing is also a reflection sometimes of of the lack of proximity that they have mm-hmm. to students and I think for me what I would say is that like you know let's how do, how do we reintroduce this idea of, of loving and caring for our students why, why don't we have a, a, a report card on that like how well does this love their students wow right? and and hold and create metrics for that and ask our students if they feel affirmed and loved and if they're happy right I mean we don't even ask those questions we, we want to know if they uh, have passed like the reading whatever but like it's like we we and I think students are reacting to it in, in, in a way that's not necessarily positive right because they they feel like numbers and they feel disengaged and they feel like statistics and and I think that's why you know we we have to make stronger efforts to create school and educational environments that, that actually unapologetically love on their students and want the best for them, right? Want the things for them that they would want for their own. Um, and that's what I like to see. And so like, yeah, people can talk policy and like innovation projects and innovation schools and whatever, but if love's not a part of that, then, then I can't get with it. Um, and and there are, there are these like models, like these sort of like, what is it like no excuses and, you know, Hmm. uh almost like militaristic models of like trying to encourage excellence by like being super hyper disciplined yeah um and 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 for all the for all the good results they sometimes yield they do a lot of damage (laughs) you know uh, you know i'd much rather be motivated by love to do excellent than by fear that i'm going to get in trouble yeah. Um and I think that that that, that it it, and it may require more. And I think that's it, right? That it's not expedient. Right? And and building trust. Like when you were teaching, are you talking about your kids like, you know, it it's not it's not easy to build trust. No. But you make up for it cuz once that trust is built, like I mean kids will do remarkable amazing things. Yeah. Um you know, they will grow like they will welcome being pushed. Uh, when I taught in, in high schools, I was often ridiculed for like pushing kids too hard because, you know, if we were doing the unit on Othello, um, let's just say I, I would I would you know we we bring in some clips <laughs> that were appropriate from the movie O, oh, and we would talk about how Shakespeare there was this connection between the the Italian philosopher Niccolo Machiavelli, and then when they heard the name Machiavelli, they were like like Tupac, and I was like yeah let's let's do some Tupac, right. And kids were just excited. And they were reading, like, literally they were reading philosophy and dissecting and doing hermeneutics of, like, this philosopher and connecting it to, like, Tupac and connecting it to Othello. And, and the students, like, the results were there because I, I had I, – it took time, right, but I had to be creative with how I was going to bring all of these different topics and things together. And actually, like, what what, what drove me to do that was, like, my love for these kids, and mm-hmm. they deserved – they deserved a lesson. They could be excited about.
2: Absolutely.
1: You know, and, and when you consider, I think I said this in Vegas. When you consider that your particular classroom or your particular school, if you're in a school that that is really moving in this direction, if you can consider that that might be for some of our students, some of our kids, that might be the safest, most affirming place some of them have. Yeah. You know, we have a lot of a lot of our kids are in, in broken communities, broken families, and not not broken in a like deterministic sense but like these communities and families that just need healing right and that's just the reality of that and so sometimes we have to like that is the beacon of hope uh and when i think about my favorite teacher miss scott third grade little rock arkansas you know, when I would push back, when I would not want to do my work, when I would like, you know, and, and and as a black boy, that was kind of tough for me. I hid my report cards. I didn't want people to know I was smart because I thought that would you know, make me a, a sissy or that made me not cool. Um, and she would say, do it again. She's like, you can do better than that. I would I would literally turn in something and, and get answers wrong because I just didn't I didn't. I, the burden of being black and excellent would put me in predominantly white classrooms where I didn't feel a burn. And so I, I wanted to be with my peers and and she got that. And I think she kind of redirected me into seeing the, the difference that academic excellence could make in my life options and opportunities. And so I just have like, you know, when I when I was a teacher, I was doing it for Miss Scott. Like I I wanted each of my students to see that, like, this is this is not just about the class right now. This is about the opportunities and life options you have. And, 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 you know, so somebody said, Oh, you got so many Facebook blogs. I say like, half of them are my students because <laughs> I told them when they graduated from high school, I, I'd friend them. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but it's, 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 it's a great journey. And I think, you know, as hard as this work can be at times, like, you know, even just talking on this podcast, you know, it's like people say I, I was doing a session in, um, at the summit in New Orleans, and they were like, "You really like, like you're good up front, like you're good in the classroom." And I was like, "Yeah, I think I kind of missed that. Like, I miss teaching. Yeah, um, I, I developed a real love for it, and, and yet I'm, I'm happy. I'm doing the work I'm doing now, like inspiring, motivating, you know, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, like creating space for for leaders and education leaders to be brave and their love for their kids." But I, I do miss the classroom, and I think it's, it's because, I think, you know, seeing that transformation that students make, is there, there's no reward like it mm. Nothing at all.
2: Wow. And I, so you,
0: you touched on a bunch of stuff there that brought something up for me. Like, those high expectations, you're ridiculed for giving high expectations to your students, but teachers at uh, Stuyvesant are not. Mm. What are the differences in demographics? um for the teachers at stuyvesant it's expected that those student, nine black students got into stuyvesant high school yeah I was, I was reading about that
1: that is, that is just that is it's i don't even know i don't even have the word for what it is
0: and and, and so just but no so so now we know knowing that only nine black students got in mm-hmm, No what the demographic looks like in that building. And the teachers at that school are not ridiculed for pushing and for giving high expectations and for making and for right. uh, do rigorous work. So why is it that, that black and brown students, students from low income communities, that, they're, that, that, you're, that, that that is, is a, even a conversation, that why are you pushing them? And, and so taking a second to unpack that is so important and so necessary because again, I should be, every student in the United States should be pushed to the same rigor because we should all be expecting them to excel. We shouldn't be expecting some kids to excel and some kids that it's just going to be what it's going to be. That's not good enough. And when you love somebody, which brings us back to like what we've been talking about this whole time is like when you love somebody, you don't expect for them to fail. (laughs) You expect for them to rise, um, rise up and to do and excel and do great. And so if we embrace this love of students and this love of education and instill that love of learning into students and love of lifetime learning into students, we then get to see what it looks like to have a truly inclusive education, to, to have a truly inclusive job force and innovation and all these incredible things happening and, and seeing a diverse population of people being able to achieve those things. And so I'm like looking through the rest of the questions, and I think we really touched on all um, pretty much everything that I wanted to talk about. um, Because yeah, like the conversation around curriculum, it's important for us to learn about the history of our country. It's important for us to understand how numbers work and how we can take ownership over our money, our finances, having financial literacy, all these different things that aren't taught in school, but the idea is through math, we're able to do those things. So I think that the, that the the questions that i have about curriculum kind of have been answered in the sense that we just have to implement some of these relational things in order for students to be getting this curriculum or to be understanding this curriculum
2: Mm -hmm. Um,
0: but if there's anything that you want to add about uh, the state of curriculum specific things that you want to be changed within curriculum uh, for students of color but for students in general
2: then yeah, I
1: definitely want yeah, to. I would, I would just say, I, you know, I want, I'm serious about this idea of how do we measure, like, the, so we talk about social money, emotional learning, we talk about, like, trauma-informed education, but to me, it's like, it's it's nothing if there's no metric for it, if there's no accountability to it, right? And so, like, how do we create the same kind of, like, rigorous measures uh, that we do for academic outcomes for these other areas that I think, you know, we can't look at these areas independent of each other they're all interrelated right and so uh cultural responsive to pedagogy like is there a metric for like how culturally responsive is your school mm-hmm. like we're not like we talk about it as a theory but like are we actually measuring it yeah you know um you know I, you know we, we have we have this idea at our school it's like oh like, you, you know um you know, uh, it's, it's a Harlem Renaissance-focused arts and culture thing. But, like, are we measuring what kids in the first grade know about the Harlem Renaissance versus the sixth? You know? <laughs> I mean, like, and if there's no metric, it's kind of like it doesn't exist. It's yeah. like me that falls in the woods, right? And Nobody hears it. Does it make sound? It's like, oh, that's nice that we have, you know, culture-responsive pedagogy and trauma-informed education and mm-hmm. social-emotional learning. But, like, if we don't have metrics for it, then I feel like we we are failing our kids, and I think school should be measured in all of those ways. And a lot of schools, you know, quite honestly, that don't have all the resources. There's a lot of joy and love and and uh, and pride. Like I was at a school in New Orleans this 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 weekend, and those those kids, they are just proud. They were proud to be at Booker T. Washington. <laughs> I mean, you know, they were they were you could you just sensed it. They were proud of their school. They had a lot of pride and love for their their school. And I think we don't measure that, right? We assume that it's an under-resourced school, so the kids there are just you know sad and whatever. And yeah, you know, we even hear people talk about bad schools. I'm like, it's not a bad school. It's an under-resourced school. Mm. <laughs> you know, um so yeah, so that's what I would like to see that. I'd like to push for more measures.
2: Well, I think that's there. huge. I think
0: that's huge, especially because, like, that's, if we're, if we're talking education from a political sense, that's, mm-hmm. that's what, that's the, that's the pushback on implementing these things large scale. Well, How do we know it's actually happening? How do we see it? That's why we need test scores. That's why we have to know these things. And so definitely uh, figuring out a way to, to measure those things and to, to uplift the voices of students. If students are like, yes, of course, there are certain things that students are going to say, like, I don't want to do, or I don't understand or different things like that, like uh, that, everybody's not going to love every part of schooling, because that's just not how life works. Like, most, we don't love everything about our lives. Like, it's just not how, but why aren't students being asked, what do you want to learn? Or how would it, what would school look like for you? And I think that that's uh, um, coming soon for Black on Black Education is looking at that, And seeing, well, what what are you feeling in your school? How does it feel to be in your school? All these different things. And then why aren't their voices ever used as a metric to to say how that school is going or where the school is is happening? It's oftentimes the adults who are supposed to be on this hierarchy of knowing more and being more and being farther along than students. But oftentimes students do know what it should, that, that this schooling, this system doesn't feel right, that I'm not, I don't feel smart. I don't feel mentored, I don't feel loved, I don't feel cared for in this space. And those, those voices should certainly be heard and there should be a metric to explaining that and it should be used to create policy, to create. And so I'm, I'm like, I, I wanna get a doctoral degree and I wanna do research and that's what I want to do my research and I, what would it look like for, for students and parents to have a voice in the policies that are made in their building. So uh, I think that's definitely huge. And so, kind of just to round this out, um, like a two, two sentence, three sentence response that you would have to people who say we shouldn't be teaching LGBTQ issues, we shouldn't be teaching race and gender issues. We should—that's not what school is for. School is for reading, writing, arithmetic. What would be your spiel to that? That your short spiel to that person um, to explain to them the importance of everything that we just talked about.
1: Yeah. I mean, and I would just say that, like, you know, you again, you can't reach people that you don't love. And if you're ignoring parts of their identities that are so important to who they will become, then I mean, it, you can give them all the content in the world. They'll, they'll space out. They won't be engaged. Um, you know, I, I remember and I was a I was a good student. Right. Mm-hmm. But I spent an inordinate amount of time distracted and stressed over not feeling like I was cared for or loved. Mm. That's how I started think like, how much how much more of my brilliance would I have tapped into mm. if, that, if that wasn't a worry of mine. Like if I could just show up and like and get to the content, right? So I think that's that's part of why we do these other things is because we need kids to be okay so that they can absorb the content and the knowledge and not have to worry about that. Right. Wow. Uh, and that's a privilege that a lot of our sis right straight you know kids get right like they can go to I can go to school and just focus on my lesson and ha right like that's really wonderful right but like when you have these other barriers against you it's it's, it's important that we talk to our kids about racial justice and and and, and gender and and and, and orient, sexual orientation and 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 just like people being and part of it is like what's the pushback against kids and it's history right of kids knowing that like, You know, in in 69, there was a riot, you know, that was set off by, you know, uh, trans women of color in New York. Like, that's a part of history. So, like, you're not going to tell them that? And then how accurate is your history if you're just going to leave stuff out? Right? Like, like why did they leave out that James Baldwin wasn't a gay man? Right? Like, why was that omitted?
0: I didn't know who James Baldwin was until I was, like, maybe a year or two ago. Mm Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's just real. For, like in my school, it, we read Nectar in a Sieve and that was like, oh, we're multicultural. Boom. Like that was it. And so, yeah, like what would have changed if I knew these different writers, these different thinkers, these, I go to CUNY. It took me until literally like a month ago to know that Bell Hooks and Audre Lorde worked for CUNY. Like
1: what? Right. Oh, absolutely. And the what? projects that Audrey Lord did there were um, intense and amazing. Like, why, no, why, like isn't there a, why isn't there a whole auditorium named after?
0: <laughs> and we could go on for days and days and days about things about that. But um, I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for your, like, in-depth responses to these questions and and knowing that like, just because we, we have answers and we have thoughts that like, that's not enough. And so that you're also an active participant in um, making these changes and, and making these changes on the individual level and making these changes on, on um, institutional levels in terms of Teach for America and the way that they're looking at these different things and the, your neighborhood school. And, and, and I, I just, I am grateful that, to know that there are people out there like you um, who are doing the work and who have committed their lives to doing the work. And I'm excited to step into it with y'all. And so just to kind of end out, do you have any questions uh, for Black on Black Education? No,
1: nah, just I think these conversations are wonderful and great. And, um, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm happy you're forging them and you're leading because I think they just need to happen. Or well, we, we need circles of, of people to just come together. I feel like a, a lot of times, and, and this is not to, um, undermine like the current interest in like the, the election and politics but I think what what makes for a strong communities and strong nations we got to also and alongside those efforts really build our communities really create spaces where people are sitting around tables and talking about different topics and issues and you know th- that's what we've kind of lost I think you know and so, so you know I'm learning to turn my you know like I was like, this whole interview, I wasn't on social media, like, you know, like, because we, we've gotten so locked into it that I think we've gotten disconnected from, like, relationship building and people. And so that's that's my commitment is, like, getting back to that, because when, when you have proximity to people and their experiences and stories, mm-hmm. uh, I think you value their lives in a very different way, um, and you understand their lives in a very different way. Uh, I'll, case in point is, there was a, a support staff at the school that I volunteer at. Uh, And she and she said to me, she said, you know, I wasn't sure what to think about you when you first started coming around, you know, and I've I've had my opinions and thoughts about the LGBT community. Mm. She's just like, I love you. Like you are about the business. You care about these kids. And she's like, once I got to know you, like I felt kind of silly and misinformed for all the thoughts I had, because You know, as people you don't know, you can mythologize very easily. People you don't know, you can look at them at a distance and go like, oh, those folk over there. But when you have proximity to them and you see their humanity, it just shifts everything. And I think that's what I want for our kids. I want our kids to grow up in schools and learn in spaces where they see the full humanity of their peers,
2: Mm.
1: right? I mean, and I, I think like, I mean, talk about revolutionary education, talk about shifting the world. Like what if we created a generation of kids that like deeply cared about the humanity? And, and I'm saying, I'm not saying that kids now don't do that. I think that's kind of what we're seeing is like a lot of anger and frustration at like the job that we've done. Right. Like we have failed our kids. And I think a lot of them are angry Yeah. and, and disappointed about that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you so much again and just to really finally end this thing shout yourself out if there's anything that you're working on anything going on that you want people to to tap into or to look at uh, let the listeners know
1: yeah i mean you know i you know I, in terms of big projects i mean there's there's not i mean i just finished uh, the third of three brave education summits which is where i met you uh powerful work i mean i think new Orleans really tested <laughs> Uh, me giving the, the name of Brave Education because we had some things happen there that we had to be responsive to and they didn't feel good and mm. people had to kind of come together and there were tears and anger and, and, and and but at the end of the day, I'm like, that's that's what community does, right? Like, we work through those, those triggers and we work through those things that don't feel good and we still show up for our kids. Yeah. Uh, and those are the people I want in our schools and classrooms are the people that can, can kind of work through that. So, uh, I'm inspired by that. We'll be getting ready to plan the next year's Brave Education Summits. Hopefully, you'll come back. You'll maybe even do a workshop. Um, I think will be awesome. Um, so yeah, I mean that's that's pretty much it. I'm just going to enjoy the holiday with Bay and family, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's going to be a nice nice holiday season. That I really very appreciate that.
0: I'm very yeah. happy. Thank and you. let's just spend these holidays, spend the rest of the time and go into the new year loving on each other a little bit
1: more. Right. Yeah. And then take that love that we experience and, and, and a few of those pounds, like, like you know, because I'm already prepared. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna give myself about ten.
0: I am not already <laughs> let my pants out. It's alright. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right, exactly. So yeah, no, nah, but thank you so much. And uh yeah, I, I, let's let's continue to talk. Uh you absolutely. know, absolutely. Thank you. All for right. that. It was so okay. good
2: calling you on. I will Thank you so much. Have a good one.
1: All right.